the scripture reading for this afternoon will be taken from two passages. First of all, Genesis 1, the verses 1 and 2. And then after that, we will be reading from John chapter 1, the verses 1 to 18. Genesis 1, the verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So far, we'll now be moving on to John chapter 1, which you'll be able to find on page 1220 of your pew Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In Him were made, all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Word of God. Let's now read from the summary of the Word of God, which we can find in the Heidelberg Catechism. And we'll be looking at the Trinity in Lord's Day 8. And you'll be able to find that on page 524 of your Book of Praise. How are these articles divided? So these articles are the... Uh, Apostles' Creed, which had just come before in Lord's Day 7. And we read here, they're divided into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. And the third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. 
beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today you have witnessed these two brothers here profess their faith. And what a beautiful thing it is for them to profess their faith in our triune God. Among other things that they profess about their faith, they professed that they believe our church is a faithful church. They professed that they believe that this church held to Scripture in such a way that they can faithfully serve God here, growing under teaching and preaching that is true and faithful to the Bible. Now, that's a pretty broad range. So how can we summarize what they professed? At its most basic, we can summarize our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. That itself can be further summarized, as our Heidelberg Catechism does it, by describing the Trinity. All of our faith comes down to who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what our triune God does. Now, there, as a side note, there are those who say that because the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible, the whole idea of the Trinity isn't biblical. Now, it can be pointed out in response to that, that nowhere do we read about women attending the Lord's Supper either. However, there are more things that can be deduced from Scripture by good and necessary consequence. More than that, there are certain things that we do find in Scripture that we can use very helpful, special words to explain. Sacrament is another example of that. You won't find that word in the Bible either. Simply because we use a word to give us a category to help us organize our thoughts doesn't mean that idea isn't found in Scripture at all. But that's not the focus today. Now, you may find it interesting that the Heidelberg Catechism breaks down the idea of the Trinity in the way that it does. It doesn't try to explain how the Trinity works. It doesn't try to explain how Jesus is God's Son, how the Father relates to the Son and Spirit. Because every time that people try to do that, explaining what exactly the Trinity is, they run into problems. Take, for example, the three-leaf clover picture that's said to have been used by St. Patrick. He said that the Trinity is like three leaves, yet one leaf. But the problem is that his example splits God into thirds, when each person of the Trinity is true God. Another person suggested that God is like a person who is a father, a son, and a brother. But that makes God one person with just three names and three roles. It blurs the persons of the Trinity and makes what happened between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at Christ's baptism impossible. There are so many examples that are used to describe the Trinity, but they all fall short if you try to draw them from the created world. They either blur the members of the Trinity into one or they divide God into three parts. Some of these examples even make it look like we're worshiping three gods instead of one. In contrast with this, though, you'll, you'll find the Bible itself, while it talks a lot about the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, never actually gives us a picture of what the Trinity is. There's a very good reason for this. 
It doesn't describe it because the interweaving of the work of the Trinity, the interweaving of the person of the Trinity is indescribable. Our human minds can't comprehend it because there's nothing in the created world that's like it. Because God is above creation. Any time that you try to use a picture of something in the created world to describe our uncreated, infinite God, you're going to run into trouble. There's nothing to compare him to because he's God. But how then can we know that the teaching of the Trinity is true? We can know that it's true because the work of the Trinity is described in the Bible. Boys and girls, in theological words, this is known as the economic Trinity. The economic Trinity talks not about the way that these relationships work, but instead it talks about the work that each of the members of the Trinity actually does. It doesn't talk about the way that these relationships work together, but it talks about what each person of the Trinity does. And we know that because the Son, Jesus Christ, has made the work of the Trinity clear to man. The Son has made the Father known. The Son has spoken of His own work in this world. And the Son speaks of the Holy Spirit. And today we'll be looking at that under the following three points. We'll see the Trinity. First of all, the work of the Father. Secondly, the work of the Son. And third, the work of the Holy Spirit. The Catechism speaks about God the Father and our creation. It speaks of the Father as our Creator. We've seen that truth in the passages that we've read today. And while you won't read specifically that God the Father created the heavens and the earth, it's a truth that's attached to the understanding of the idea of the universal fatherhood of God. But from where do we get this picture? In the ancient world, when a divine being was the creator of something new, that being was often referred to as being the father of whatever it was. This was true across the board. Not just true for Israel, but true for the other nations as well. This was no less true for Israel's view of God, Israel's revelation of God himself to them. In the ancient world, God's sovereign power was considered to be especially shown in the way that he controlled the lights of the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars, and all their hosts. And we see this pictured in James 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. He is the Father of creation. But it wasn't just that he was the Father of creation. He was the Father of all peoples as well. In reading the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, we see how he is considered the son of Adam, the son of God. God, as the one who created all peoples, and the one who set their boundaries into place, was seen to be their father in a loose sense. Over everything that God created, he was seen as father, as a source, as the origin of it. 
He upholds us each. And every one of us is carried on through that role. He gives us life and health and strength. He gives each person on this planet every second of our existence. This world keeps spinning because God upholds the rules that he set in place from the time of creation. And because of all of that, God is the father of it all. But this was not the only way that he was a father. Because you see, in the ancient world, you could be the God and Father, the source and origin of life and of all existence, and still be really distant. You could still be far off and completely unconnected. So many of priests, so many priests of the gods and the kings who proclaimed themselves to be the fathers of their people treated the people under their care in that way. But our God is different. He showed how he was different in choosing a people for himself. We read in Jeremiah 31 verse 9, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And he meant it. He created for himself a special people in this world. And he guided his people throughout history from the beginning to the present day. Causing the psalmist David to write in Psalm 103 verse 13, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And it's this part of the fatherhood of God that should be particularly important to us. Why? Because it's at this point that so much of what we imagine about God fails us. Let me go back to James 1 verse 17 and following for a moment to show you what I mean. We read there, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for his creatures. Some people have this, this fear of the Father, and perhaps you're one of them. He's a wrathful God with all the rage of hell stored up behind him. And sadly, sometimes this comes because sometimes this is the experience that we've lived through. This is the kind of father we experienced. He is a wrathful God with all the rage of hell stored up behind him. That's the picture we get. And if Jesus did not stand in the gap, he would destroy. But that's not entirely true. This is actually a somewhat distorted view of who God is and what he does. Because as we read that the Son was involved in creation from the beginning in John 1. So too, God the Father is just as involved in our salvation as God the Son and God the Spirit. And it's because of His great and undeserved love that He does so. We all deserve His wrath, it's true. 
But because of his own great love, he chose before the foundation of the world people who are not better or more worthy than anyone else to pour out his love on. He's not sitting there barely restraining his wrath over his people. We're deserving of it, but it's not like he's got an axe hanging over the heads of his chosen people with Jesus Christ standing in between with his hands up pleading for us. No, he is actively involved in our salvation. Do you doubt this? Who sent the Son into the world? John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. This is the work of the Father. The Son went readily and freely of his own will to save for himself a people. But it was the Father who looked upon us and said that an atoning sacrifice could and would cover over our sins. And so he gave his Son to the world. And what about John 10, verses 27 to 29? Jesus says there, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And this is good. This is right. This is the picture that we so often have of Jesus Christ and his work. But then there's more. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Did you notice that? My Father who has given them to me, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God the Father cares for his chosen people. He has pity on them. He loves them. He's actively involved in saving them. And he provided Christ so that any possible barrier between him and man could be removed, that they could delight in his presence forever without guilt and without shame. He himself sacrificed what was most dear to him because he loved a people who were not deserving of it. And the Son was the one who took all that upon himself. Through the work of the Son, the Father becomes our Father too. And in the fullest sense of the word, not just as our Creator, but personally, for he loves us, and he has chosen us through his Son. And that brings us to our second point, the work of the Son. The work of the Son is often understood in a much better way by us. Our catechism describes the work of this person of the Trinity with the heading, God the Son and our redemption. And we can understand that. He has suffered on our behalf. He makes us righteous. And while we may not understand why, recognizing often how unlovable we are in and of ourselves, we do know that in him, our relationship is set right with God. But 
what does the word redeem mean? You boys and girls might be wondering, what does it mean? One Bible encyclopedia gives this definition. Redemption is freeing, the freeing of any possession, object, or person, usually by paying a ransom. In Greek, the root word means to loose, and so to free. The word is used of freeing from chains, slavery, or prison. In theological words, redemption means a freeing from the slavery of sin. It's the ransom or price paid for freedom. Now, we read in John 1 that Jesus was the light that came into the world. What God had created as good and right and pure, man had plunged into darkness through the fall into sin. And the world tried to continue that darkness. Man was bound, man was shackled in chains of night, chains that he had taken upon himself, chains of sin and unrighteousness. And having taken those chains upon himself, he grew to love those chains, and he couldn't break free again. And this is where Christ came in. He is our Redeemer. He paid for us where we could not. And by doing that for us, we read in John 1 that he became the light that shone into the darkness. While the darkness tried to overwhelm the light and tried to shut it down, the darkness could not overcome it. Satan and the world tried to overwhelm our Lord Jesus Christ with many attacks and lies and opposition from man and from demon alike. But they could not and did not overcome it. Instead, Jesus Christ was victorious. By his death on the cross, he freed us from slavery. He broke the chains that held his sheep his chosen people. But it wasn't just a freeing from sin that he did. It was the payment of a price. We read in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 to 19, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges each according to one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So Jesus Christ didn't just come into the darkness and, and break the shackles that bound us. He didn't just free us from that thing that we love, but he came to ransom sinners and he paid that with his precious blood. But who did he pay? To whom did he give this price, which was not silver or gold, but so much more? Some people have the picture of Jesus Christ as bringing payment to the devil. Christ dying so that when the devil or a demon comes along to try claim some, claim someone, he says, no, I've bought him, you can't claim him. I've bought him from you, so you can't claim him. But that's not it at all. You see, Christ came into the world to make the Father known. As we read in John 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He came in the flesh that God would walk among man. He came to let the world understand the righteousness and the holiness of God and the full cost of their sin against Him. He came to let them understand how terrifyingly pure the Father is, that He desires perfection from us. And also, He came to show a God who loves us. Our Father loves us so much that, as we saw before, He made it possible for this deep darkness that man had plunged himself into be driven back by the light. He made it possible for His Son to come into the world and for the relationship to be set right. And it was this father to whom the debt was owed. If it was just demons that had a hold over sinners, Christ could just order them. And they would have to leave shrieking, as so many of them did during Christ's lifetime on earth. Jesus Christ commands demons. He's not commanded by them. He is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He's not held hostage to the demands of mere creatures. But when man sinned, he sinned against God. He enslaved himself, putting himself in chains through his own fault. He is a debtor and a prisoner because of his debt, and his debt is to God. As we read in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And in the Old Testament, time and time again, you could see that played out through the sacrifices that were offered. The sacrifices that were offered to God. When Christ paid the price, he paid the price of sin against God and so set us right. He satisfied the debt that our blood guilt against God requires. And it was the Father and the Son working together, working in perfect harmony, who set their desire on a faithless people Loving the unlovable so much that they are willing to sacrifice to release us from chains and slavery to sin that we had willingly taken on through our own fault. For you young people professing your faith, you young men here today, this is what you're confessing. Jesus suffered and died to ransom sinners. He suffered and died to ransom not just others, but he suffered and died to ransom me. Though I may be very much a work in progress, I'm seen as legally declared righteous before God. But it was the Father working in perfect harmony with the Son who made this possible. Because of the beautiful work of the Father and the Son, the Father who chose me looks down on me in Jesus Christ and He sees me as pure and white, as fresh fallen snow. But the Father and the Son are not alone in their work. And here we're introduced to the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. To be sanctified is to be made holy. Day by day, the Holy Spirit is working to transform us, to make us holy, to mark us ever more clearly as being set apart from the world. Now, it can be tempting to view the Holy Spirit as nothing more than a power, considering His involvement in creation. We read that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And because of that, some think of Him as something other than God. But the Spirit is true God as well. He is an equal person with the Trinity. Jesus speaks about how He will 
the Spirit will testify about Jesus himself in John 15, verse 26. He'll bear witness about Jesus. A power doesn't bear witness. A person bears witness. You can grieve the Spirit. Just look at the consequences of grieving the Spirit in Acts 5. Can you grieve an impersonal power? Certainly not. But the Spirit is there and He cares. And as He was involved with the work of creation, He's also involved equally in the work of salvation. First of all, He teaches us about Jesus Christ. We read in John 14, verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He doesn't save just through some unknown, mystical, mysterious power. But he uses the word to teach us and to convict our hearts. We read again in John 16, the verses 13 to 14, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He doesn't speak on his own apart from the Father and the Son, but he takes what's being revealed to us through Jesus Christ. That salvation comes through Christ alone. He shines a spotlight on the work of Christ. He works faith in our hearts so that we can take hold of what he shows us, and he continues with us. That's right. He not only works faith so that we believe in the first place and are declared righteous through Jesus Christ, declared justified through Jesus Christ who worked to justify us, but he also continues with us. God doesn't leave us alone after he began his work. We read in Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. If you truly hold to Jesus Christ in faith, this faith that the Holy Spirit himself placed in you, the Holy Spirit will continue to work to transform you every day more and more into the image of Christ. It's because of him that you stand here today, Caleb and Joseph. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit that you believe. But it's also thanks to him that your profession of faith is not the end of the road, but it's the beginning. You've begun on a journey. You've testified that you believe in our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you've confessed that you truly believe that the Father chose you from eternity. You've confessed that it's by the Son alone that you can be made right with God. And you confess that it's the Spirit's work that let you have faith. You've confessed your faith in a God who knew you from before time began, who carried you all the way up to this present point, and who is completely and firmly in control, loving you, holding you lovingly in his hand. But most of all, you're confessing that he's still with you. This God who began to work in you is still with you and will continue to carry you every step of the way. I pray that you and that all of us would learn to live in the fullness of this reality. 
that we would put our complete trust in God who provides for us and that we would pledge ourselves to him whether newly or once again today. Let us live within the communion of saints, constantly reminding each other of what our triune God has done for us and what he continues to do for us. And let us present our lives as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him in response to that, committing to him fully and sincerely, recognizing that he who began a good work in us, he who began a good work in us, will carry it to completion. Amen.